If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 11, the gospel of John chapter 11. But first, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning that we can gather and worship you. You are the source of life. You are the richest affair. We are prone to wander, to seek lesser things. Lord, tune our hearts to sing your praise. Fix our eyes on you, Lord, and bless these words that I prepared from your word. That Jesus would be real to us, as wonderful and as beautiful as he is. Do this through your spirit in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen. One thing I've been thinking about lately is that we all have an idea of what a good life looks like, right? We know that life is about more than breathing. It's not just the time you spend alive. It's the quality of that life. And we have visions, visions for what a satisfying life would be. And these form over time, ever since we're kids, right? It's all kinds of things, like the kind of house you're going to have. Uh, the, kind, the stuff you're going to grow up and do, what your family is going to be like, what a relationship is going to be like, maybe even the vehicle that you drive. We develop all these kinds of ideas, and they grow over time, and we imagine that's how we will find the satisfaction. And I think a lot of times, we think that we came up with it, and that's not really true either, right? If you're born in India, it would look different. It's impacted by the people you know, it's impacted by the shows that you watch and the people on the show that you think is really cool and so you start saying things like them. Uh, or the commercials that you watch, right? Every beer commercial is selling you a vision of the good life. Every self-care product commercial is doing the same thing. And social media, the influencers you follow, they all have these paths to life that are being pitched to you, right? And we're forming our own idea of what a good life is as we're kind of in the midst of all of this, right? And there, there's so many different visions, but the one thing that they all have in common is that they're probably going to let you down. And the reason for that is because either they're unattainable or they're unfulfilling or they're fragile. They can't deliver on the promise of life. Uh, but the Bible talks about life too, and it does it a little bit differently. So our passage is John chapter 11. It starts in verse 17. And what's happened here is that Jesus' good friend, uh, Martha and Mary, have asked him to come heal their brother Lazarus before he dies. But Jesus, instead of coming, delays two days. And it picks up in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, uh, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, uh, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. The word of the Lord. There's a lot to answer about this. Why did Jesus delay? But the first thing I want to do uh, is first to take a moment to appreciate how weird Jesus is here. Okay. Uh, he tells Martha that her brother is going to be raised. And she says, I know he's going to be raised on the last day at the resurrection. And Jesus looks her in the eye and says, I am the resurrection. Like, that's a weird thing to say. That's like, hey, man, can I borrow your car? I am the car. Okay. <laughs> like, we don't talk like that. Right? We, it's not something we do, but it's something that Jesus does all the time. Right? He does these things. It's surprising. It's weird. And he's doing it intentionally. He wants to highlight this. He wants to highlight that he is the resurrection and the life. And we're going to unpack that today. Okay? It's an odd statement. So first, we're going to look at what it means. We're going to look at why it matters. I want to look at what do we do to live in light of that. So first, what does it mean? When Martha hears resurrection and the life, what is she thinking of? What does life mean to her? And to answer that question, we have to kind of go all the way back to Genesis. Okay? In Genesis chapter 2, uh, it describes God's creation of Adam. It says he formed him out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he became a living creature. And the point here is to say that life isn't just a biological fact. Life is a gift from the living God. He gives something of himself to us, and we have life because of that. But his life doesn't just uh, sustain us, it also satisfies us. And that's why David can say in places like Psalm 36, 7 through 9, he can say, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. He's saying that the life that God gives is like a cold glass of water on a hot summer day. And it satisfies you, like a rich food. Not a snack you get going out the door, but like a full-on feast at a Brazilian steakhouse, right? But Martha would know that the abundance of this life is something you enjoy living in obedient and trusting relationship with God. She knows Psalm 1611, where he says, you make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence, there's fullness of joy. That's a satisfying life. But it's not all Lamborghinis, super successful career, right? Amazing social standing. It's deeper than that. But it's also not, by the way, just like sitting in a corner, praying, uh, reading theology books all the time. That's not it either. It's more like abundant love, uh, peace, hope, joy, you know, things like the fruits of the Spirit. It's a life uh, where you're deeply pleased with the work of your hands and your relationships because you're engaging in all those things in relationship with God. 
To give a picture, the Bible gives one. Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, they describe the life of trusting the Lord and walking with him like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, Several years ago, I guess five or something like that now, there was a uh, drought here, right? And all the trees were just turning brown and dead and ugly. It was the worst, right? Uh, But we actually have a stream that goes behind our house. And it was really cool to see that when everything else is dying and turning brown, they're by the stream, so they're green. They grow. They have life. And you think, that's what the life that God gives is like. So all that's in the background when uh, Jesus says, I am the life to Martha. But of course, if life is God sustaining and satisfying these creatures, that still leaves a big question, a big elephant in the room. Uh, what about death? Right? When Jesus told Martha, I'm the life, her brother just died. Death puts this big question over every bit of life that we enjoy. And, you know, I think for that reason, we, we shy away from talking about it. We try and keep it away from us. Like, that happens over there. I don't think about that. I don't see that. I can't see it. It can't see me. We're fine, right? Uh, but the Bible isn't shy about it at all. The Bible tackles death head on from the beginning, right? In Genesis 2, God gives us a way to live with him forever, but we turn our backs on the God of life. We reject him and turn to death, and now we're under the curse of death in Genesis 3. And then in Genesis 5, there's that genealogy where it says these people lived all these years and then they died, and I think a lot of times when we read that part, we get stuck on how long they lived, but what sticks out to me is that refrain, He lived this many years, and then he died. He lived this many years, and then he died. So-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died. We don't want to hear that. (laughs) We don't want to hear that because our vision of the good life that we can strive to achieve can't do anything about that. But the Bible tells a story of how God deals with death. See, uh, for a while in the Old Testament, death was mysterious. It's like Sheol, you go to the place of the dead. But even, uh, there was always hope. In that genealogy with the people who live all the years and then die, there's one guy, Enoch, in 524, it says, he walked with God and then he was not, for the Lord took him. It's a weird verse. (laughs) But it's giving a clue that death isn't the end for those who have a relationship with the God of life. And people will go on to say in the Psalms, like Psalm 49, uh, you'll ransom my soul from, you'll rescue my soul from Sheol. And then finally in Isaiah, God reveals his end game. Okay, name of my son. Uh, Isaiah 26, 19. He says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. And Isaiah 25, 8. He'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That's the hope. Which, by the way, isn't disembodied, going up in clouds in heaven with angels that somehow look like little babies and harps. No, it's a resurrection. It's a restoration of all these things, an eternal life uh, for God's people. That's the hope that he gives, and that's the background when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. Right? So God, life is how he sustains and uh, satisfies us, and resurrection is the hope he gives us beyond the grave. So here in John 11, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, those are about me. I'm the one who makes that happen. 
At the resurrection, he claims God's power over death to give eternal life to everyone who believes. And as the life, he claims to be the deepest source and most in, of our most enduring satisfaction. He says, those who believe in me, though they die, yet will he live. Verse 25, and the one uh, who lives and believes in me will never die. To wrap this up, Jesus then defines eternal life. What is it? In 17.3, he says, this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. It's the same story. Just like in the Old Testament, life is about a relationship with God. Jesus then just defines that he is where we most clearly see and meet with God. He wants us to know that he is the true source of our deepest satisfaction and most enduring hope. So if that's what he means, we still have one really important question, which is, so what? Why does it matter that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Why is that good news? And I want to say, first of all, it's good news because the ways of life that this world offers us aren't really possibilities for many people. Not just anyone can achieve these ideal versions of life that we have pitched to us on commercials and on Instagram posts. We don't look like the people on the commercials, right? We don't look like the social media influencers, not most of us. We don't have those opportunities. And just look at Martha, right? She could never hope for that. She didn't have air conditioning. (laughs) No one did. Travel the world and post about it online. She, She had to walk where she wanted to go. A lot of people are born into situations just like that today. The world is our life, then they don't have any chance. Uh, And even if they aren't born into that, others suffer losses. Their world is so broken that they feel like they can never recover. Worldly hopes don't work for everyone. Because life isn't fair. It's usually... A few motivated or gifted or lucky people that can actually attain to the unrealistic modern ideals of a perfect career and relationships that promise life to us. But listen to this. If life were found in those things, then it would really look like God doesn't love most of his children. Martha certainly wouldn't have confidence in his love. She asked Jesus to come heal her brother. Then he delays and waits, shows up after he's dead four days. And Mary, in verse 20, it looks like she uh, can't, she's so hurt and confused that she can't even get off the couch to go, to meet Jesus. If life is only found in earthly blessings, then Martha has no reason to believe that Jesus is acting out of love for her. But if she doesn't believe that, she's wrong. Because verse 5 says that's exactly what he's doing. It says, and, Martha, and Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. As we'll see, Jesus was leading Martha through this deep pain, not to take life away from her, but to give her life. If we get the source of life wrong, we'll never be able to understand that. And we will lose our confidence in God's love and be violently tossed around by the storms we have to endure in this fallen world.
But if we know that Jesus is the life, uh, then we know that God can meet us wherever we are, even in our times of deepest pain, to give us life. This means that you can rest in his love. And it means that you can receive his life. Because even our pain can become a path to a deeper relationship with Jesus and a richer life because of it. It also matters that Jesus claims to in himself be the resurrection and the life because abstract ideas aren't the same as people. Okay? When you're really hurting... Religious truths don't really help the way you want them to most of the time. Maybe you know what I mean. Uh, You can can see what I'm talking about in this conversation with Martha. Uh, Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha's hurting. When Jesus says Lazarus will be raised, she thinks that Jesus is just trying to comfort her by reminding her of a religious truth that she grew up with. See, for Martha, the resurrection is this far off event and it doesn't intersect with her present. Okay. And here's the thing. A distant reality doesn't help you when you lose your job. A distant reality doesn't help you when your marriage begins to crack. A distant reality doesn't help you when your relationship with your kids starts to fall apart. And it doesn't help you uh, when those you trust betray you. It doesn't help you when your friends leave you. It doesn't help you when your brother dies. The fact of the resurrection might keep you sane, but it won't keep you spiritually satisfied. We need more. We need the person. You could paraphrase Martha in this conversation. I know Lazarus will be raised then, but do you have any goodness for me now? I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't tell Martha what he's about to do. He could have told her, I'm about to raise Lazarus. It's okay. Let's go to the tomb. Now, roll away the stone. Boom, he's raised. Problem solved. We go home rejoicing. But he doesn't do that. He could, but I think if he did that, it might suggest that her hope really revolves around her circumstances. So instead, he meets her in her pain, and first he invites her faith in him to grow. He directs her hope to his person. It's like he said, Martha, I am the resurrection. This isn't just some future event to comfort yourself. It's me. By faith, you can receive my life now, and not even death can take it away. That's true for Lazarus, and it's true for you. Do you believe this? 
In verse 27, she responds with faith as best as you can. Yes, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, the one who's coming into the world. Jesus wanted her to know that he's the resurrection and that his indestructible life could sustain her right now. And because he's standing right there in front of her, she can trust him because she knows him. But I want to tell you, that's not just true for Martha. That's true for you. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. He said that he would give us his Holy Spirit to come in us, to dwell inside of us. He even said it would be better for him to go, right? Which seems hard to believe because sometimes it'd be nice to have Jesus here, right? But the disciples were within three years and they didn't get him, right? So we need the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so he gives us that and he, he can be with us anytime, no matter where we are. It's true for you too. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not here. And if we engage with Jesus, the resurrection and the life, he can sustain us and refresh us today. And that's the good news, right? Life isn't some far off achievement that many people can't reach. Resurrection isn't some distant event that doesn't have any relation to us now. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's present so that no matter what your circumstances are, they don't undermine the love of God for you because he can bless you and give you life right now, today. But not only can we receive, rest in and receive God's love uh, because Jesus is with us through his spirit to give us life, the other reason is that the abundant life that Jesus gives us is durable. It's durable. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> Not only can not, uh, most people not make it to the world's idealized view of self-fulfillment, right? how you achieve happiness, but the, what's really crazy is that those who do are often profoundly aware of how unsatisfied they are. I could give you a million examples. One of my favorites is Tom Brady. Right? After he won his uh, third Super Bowl ring in 2005, he was in this uh, 60 Minutes interview, and he had this rare moment of, of vulnerability where uh, he just said this. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, well, this is what it is. My goal, my life, me, I think, God, it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I've done it, 27. What else is there for me? And the interviewer says, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. We get caught up in this rat race, trying to pursue whatever vision of the ideal life we have. Maybe it's that of those around us because we believe that we're actually gonna reach this place where we'll be satisfied. Where we'll feel fulfilled and not empty. Maybe you experienced a little bit of that earlier this week and this whole week without even really recognizing it. You've been chasing that. We design our lives to reach a point where we think, then I'll have it and it'll stick. I'll be satisfied. But we have to ask the question, what if we get everything we were aiming for 
and we still feel empty. Because let's face it, careers don't often satisfy, not in the long run. Friends will let you down. They will not be what you expect them to be. Romantic relationships, they are not meant to be so perfect that they can fulfill that void inside of you. If you put that pressure on them, they will crack and break eventually. I think one of the main reasons that keeps us back from realizing that all these hopes we have are false is that we just haven't arrived yet. They're still out there somewhere. And as long as we haven't achieved what we want to achieve, then we can believe that they're going to give life once we get there. But they're false hopes. And I want to encourage you, don't wait until you're profoundly disappointed to place your hope in better things. but some of you might be a little skeptical here because some of you might actually be good at building relationships that are pretty rewarding, pretty rich, and you're actually able to keep enough pressure off them that they can stay that way, at least for a while, and you can ignore the parts that aren't so good. But uh, it's a common strategy. I think that's actually where Tom Brady starts to lean in the rest of the video. He says that he's most happy through relationships in his life, like his family and close friends. But I just want to tell you, even if you do find a lot of satisfaction in that relationship, it's still fragile. What happens when the person that you poured so much into dies? Martha had a great relationship with Lazarus. She could have had the most fulfilling relationship with her brother, but then he died. No earthly source of life uh, can escape the jaws of death, which means that every single one sets us up to fail, and there's nothing that we can do about it. But I promise there's good news. (laughs) Okay, the good news is that Jesus is different. The life that he gives us is durable. In fact, that's why he calls it eternal life. Um, Unlike any source of satisfaction that this world can offer, the life that he gives us will go on forever and it will increase forever and ever. One thing I find interesting about this passage is that Martha doesn't know what to expect from Jesus. All she knows is who he is. She knows something good is going to happen because Jesus is there. So that's what he does. But no one expects Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Not after Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Not after he asks Martha in verse 39 to roll the stone away from the tomb. She replies, uh, it's gonna, there's going to be a smell now. <laughs> right? Lazarus, no one can say Lazarus is only mostly dead. He's what you would call super dead. You know, it's been four days. But only God could raise Lazarus. Of course, that doesn't stop Jesus, right? Not even death can stop him from blessing his people. He steps forward in uh, verse 43, and he commands, Lazarus, come out. And he does. Walks right out of the tomb. Have you ever wondered what, what did Lazarus feel like after this, right? What was that like? I mean, yeah, he was the guy that Jesus raised from the dead, but he was also the guy that had to die twice. You know, like, next time he had like a cramp or a pain in his side, do you think he was like, oh no, I'm gonna die again? 
he, maybe he was chill, like, you know, been there, done that. I don't know. One thing I do know is that he would die again. Just like everyone else. And that's why it's really important that Jesus has this conversation with Martha first, right? This passage isn't about how Jesus helped Martha by raising her dead brother. This passage is about how Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he wants him raising Lazarus to be a picture of that, okay? It's a picture of the truth that it's really about, and that's encouraging to me because Jesus doesn't go around today raising our dead brothers and sisters in Christ, but Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's who he is for everyone who believes all the time. And he might not raise our loved ones this side of the kingdom, but he does give us a life that not even death can take away. He said he came to give abundant life, and he meant it. Do you believe that? If you're tempted to believe, though, that Jesus' love does disappoint, I want you to remember this. Even his delays, like when he didn't show up for days after Lazarus died, are actually part of these bigger and greater acts of love and kindness. Because if you read the rest of John 11, you're going to find that Jesus didn't just raise Lazarus after four days in order that a bunch of people would say he has to be the Messiah. And he didn't just raise Lazarus after four days, even just to show something about himself to Martha. He did it because he was actually trying to build a big enough following behind him that the Jewish religious leaders would say, we need this guy to go now. He delayed so that he could die. And he died in our place, to take the curse of death on himself so that we could be delivered from death once and for all. Because Jesus defeated death for us, we can know that the life he gives us is eternal. Because he loved us enough to defeat death by bearing it himself and bearing all the judgment that we deserved, we can know that the life he gives us will be fulfilling. How could it not? John 15 says, in John 15, Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Christian, Jesus calls you his friend. Can you not rest secure in the arms of your Savior? Well, let's look at the words of Paul in Romans 8, uh, 31 and following. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Love like that from the one who made us. How could it ever ultimately disappoint? He is the resurrection and the life, and he's present to bless us. He calls us to come to rest in his love, and to receive his life by faith. 
which leaves us with one final question. How? There's a lot of things you could say. What does it look like to lean into that? I'm just going to give three real quick. First, I think it means a change in priorities. If we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, uh, then we're going to long to be with him. We're going to go to the places where he promises to meet us. He might not walk with us anymore, but he dwells in us through his spirit, and he meets us in his word. He meets us in prayer. He meets us in a special way when we come together to worship him as the church. Your time matters. It's your most precious currency. So if we believe he's the, the life, maybe that means not just going to the lake every weekend you can. Or staying home because uh, it's just more comfortable. Or maybe it means not binging that show on Netflix while you're neglecting to go to Jesus for life in prayer, in scripture, and in fellowship with other believers. If we were to ask, maybe we need to wonder, if we were to ask someone to watch a video of our week and answer where we were looking for life, what would they say? Maybe we can ask that and adjust our lives accordingly. Not just because you need to do that, but because you actually believe Jesus when he says that he's the life. Second, it's a change in strategy. If we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then when bad things happen, we're going to go to him to ask, what are you doing? What are you showing me? What are you at work here? How? See, because when bad things happen, we all have strategies. We develop them often from a young age. Sometimes it's taking control of the situation, trying to make sure nothing happens. Sometimes it's checking out and just hands off, isolating, self-medicating, whatever it is. Jesus calls us to do a different strategy. It's you come to him. When you're frustrated, you come to him with that. If you're hurting like Martha and Mary, you come to him with that. Because maybe he wants to meet you there and to show you something of his heart. And it means being open to receive what he has for you in those moments. But finally, maybe you're not there right now. Maybe you're too hurt or you're confused, or maybe you conf- uh, don't know exactly what you believe. If that's you, and you just can't get yourself up to go to Jesus, kind of like Mary at first, I want to tell you what Martha told her. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. He's not rushed. He'll meet you where you are. But he is calling you because he is the resurrection and the life. He calls you to come. If you have no strength, he calls you to come because he is our spiritual food, the bread of life come down from heaven. He says, if anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. Whoever feeds on me will live forever because of me. He offers us his life. And this brings us to the table. It's a little drama where we celebrate uh, Jesus' death for our sins, where he seals his promises to us, and where we receive his life in a special way through faith. He meets us here and feeds our faith with himself, and he does this until the day when we're raised and our faith becomes sight.
when he'll wipe away every tear and feast with us in the kingdom. So prepare your hearts for the feast. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. We look to you. You alone satisfy us, God. Help us to trust you in this, to look to you as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God. Feed our faith with your word, with your life. We need you. Break up stony hearts. Exalt your son, Heavenly Father. Do this through your spirit. And that's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.